Good morning to each of you. I hope you've had a good week this past week. Um, at least when it's a rains like this, I don't have to worry about spitting on anybody. So, <clears throat> and that's kind of the malady that happens sometimes as you uh, have people sit in front of you. They have to bring their umbrella in that first row. So I'm thankful that we don't have to do that today. Uh, and, of course, I know I've gone long enough or too long uh, whenever my wife goes over and gets some dessert over there at the table right over there. So I kept an eye on where that is so that I can be sure and uh, get me some of that. I may even start over there whenever the time comes. It sounds pretty good to me. So I don't know about y'all. I, I have known people <clears throat> who actually started with dessert. And uh, they, somebody told me that life is just too short. May just kill over while I'm eating, while I'm sitting here. So they go ahead and start with the dessert. I kind of like that philosophy, actually. <clears throat> Well, Babes does wonderful things. It brings out a lot of people to I'm having chicken today. I'm looking forward to that. That's one of the great things that we get to do quite often with people that we bring into town or come visit us. Uh, that's where we go. We go to Babes and enjoy the great food there. So I'm glad we are having that today. Um, of course, uh, in this day and time in which we live, it is... Um, interesting to see the things that we as individuals face and what our society is like and what it unfortunately is going to be like down the road and so we want to look at some of those things today and really focus in on uh, the evil day that we live in but how we as Christians how we as believers in Christ can stand in the evil day so we'll look at that in just a moment however let's take a moment of silent prayer first and like Chuck said today we need to make sure our heart is right. So if there's anything in your life that uh, might impede our having a successful time together today, then now's the time to name that sin to God and ask God the Father for a concentration on his word. So a moment of silent prayer. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity today. We're thankful for your grace, blessings, benefits on each of us every day. We're thankful that we still live in the greatest country probably in the history of the world. We're thankful for the freedoms we've had. Help us to realize as individual believers that those freedoms can be uh, easily lost. And it's up to us to grow by means of grace, to know your word to apply it to our lives so that as individual believers living in the cosmos diabolicus, we can have great peace and security because we know that you are always with us. Encourage us with the words today. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will take the things that we study and make them a source of challenge and blessing to each one of us. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Most of you probably have a favorite movie. I, I have quite a few, especially this time of year. I like to get out and watch because uh, it is uh, the 1st of June. Is some pretty big historical events have occurred. And then we just finished Memorial Day that we, uh, of course, remember those individuals who were killed in the service of the country. Uh, and then uh, this past week, June the 6th, I'm sure some of you could tell me the significance of that, 1944, June 6th. D-Day, that's correct. What about, uh, well, let's have a quiz. 
Uh, somebody answered. What about uh, June 4 through 7, 1942? No? Pearl Harbor, 42. Shortly after Pearl Harbor occurred in December 41. And so Midway, Battle of Midway, occurred over those 40s, one of the great naval, if not the greatest naval victory in all of history. So what I like to do occasionally, like to commemorate D-Day, I might get out Saving Private Ryan and watch the initial battle episode about D-Day. And if you've never seen that, you might want to do that. Uh, it shows in horrific detail uh, some of what our soldiers went through as they landed on Normandy and the beaches there in France. So, and then, of course, the Battle of Midway with Charlton Heston and, uh, let's see, Peter Fonda, about back in the day when we had these wild, wonderful, great actors uh, and one too many actresses in this one. But uh, it, was wonderful, it was wonderful to get that one out and watch. And so those old movies helped me visualize what our guys in military service have done. And so the question becomes, are, are we as a nation about to lose that. Uh, I wonder, I think about that. Uh, let me, I want to read for you today a Medal of Honor citation for one of our soldiers in War II. You may have heard of Captain Benjamin Salomon. Has anybody heard that name? Usually when these are read, we have not. Some of these are great uh, men who, great heroes, and we really don't, uh, know really who they are, but listen to this citation. Of course, all these citations begin with, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life, above and beyond the call of duty, Captain Ben Salomon was serving at Saipan in the Marianas, July 7, 1944. He was the surgeon for the 2nd Battalion, the 105th Infantry Regiment, 27th Infantry Division. The regiment's 1st and 2nd battalions were attacked by an overwhelming force estimated at between 3,000 and 5,000 soldiers. It was one of the largest attacks attempted in the Pacific theater of war during War II. Although both units fought furiously, the enemy soon penetrated the battalion's com <clears throat> combined perimeter and inflicted overwhelming casualties. In the first minutes of the attack, Approximately 30 wounded soldiers walked or crawled into Captain Salomon's aid station. He was a dentist who was really serving as the surgeon for the battalion. So maybe you don't think about that too long, the, the dentist actually doing surgery. But I'm sure he was very competent. So, uh, yes. Did Brent say that? Yeah. <laughs> Brent, our resident dentist back there. All right. As the perimeter began to be overrun, it became increasingly difficult for Captain Salomon to work on the wounded. He then saw a soldier, one of the foreign soldiers, bayoneting one of the wounded soldiers lying near the tent. Firing from a squatting position, Captain Salomon quickly killed the enemy soldier. Then as he turned his back, back to the wounded people that he was attending, two more soldiers appeared in front of the tent. As these enemy soldiers were killed, four more crawled inside the tent walls, under them actually. Rushing them, Captain Salomon kicked the knife out of the hand of one, shot another, bayoneted a third. Captain Salomon butted the fourth enemy uh, soldier in the stomach, 
and a wounded comrade then shot and killed the enemy soldier. Realizing the gravity of the situation, Captain Salomon ordered the wounded to make their way as best they could back to the regimental aid station while he attempted to hold off the enemy until they were clear. Captain Salomon then grabbed a rifle from one of the wounded and rushed out of the tent. After he killed four close to a machine gun, he manned the machine gun himself. Captain Salomon took control of it. When his body was found later, there were 98 dead enemy soldiers piled up in front of his position. He had been shot over 30 times. Captain Salomon's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service and reflect great credit upon himself, his unit, and the United States Army. How awesome is that? And you can multiply that many, many times in our history. Somebody stood up. Somebody took a stand to do the right thing. Of course, he had to. He, he was from Milwaukee, by the way. Mike? Milwaukee. Yeah, Milwaukee. So uh, he was from Milwaukee, and uh, he, was, uh, he ended up uh, moving to California later on. Uh, but that's where he enlisted was in California. So what a great soldier, and he did his duty. And so the question becomes, you know, what is our duty? We can't do that. We would never even aspire to do anything like that, probably. But we do have a responsibility. And we do have the responsibility of coming to the point where in the face of adversity, like we're going to see, is my prediction. I'm not a prophet. But uh, we do want to make sure that we are living our lives with highest integrity, with the application of the Word of God to experience, and do it in such a way as to influence the lives of those around us we love. Now, we can do that. And so there are several passages of Scripture. We'll look at two or three of them today, as many more we could look at. Look at. But in these abnormal times, what does God expect of us? And it is abnormal. Uh, I've got a couple of things written down here. Uh, when a nation fails, there's always two or three reasons. When you look at history, when we go back to uh, the Roman Empire, is the easiest one to go to. Now we look at other nations who are God's uh, client nation, his representative nation. What happened to those nations? So it's not like we can't learn from history. But I heard somebody say one time that uh, the greatest thing that we forget is history. And we don't remember what actually happened to other people because we become so involved in our nation, in our desires, in our wants, we lose sight of what, what history is, is trying to teach us. And I see that in the USA today. We're losing sight. We've lost sight. And so right now, a nation that does not succeed tends to have wrong priorities. Okay, that's an obvious, isn't it? Where is God in the picture? God established this nation. So where is he when we forget uh, exactly how we got here? When you look back at the founding fathers, many of those were believers in Christ. Some were not. Uh, ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, probably not. But many of them were. And they understood the Bible from the original languages. Uh, they understood the Roman system of government. And they understood the Greek system of government. 
and they put it together into a fabulous system that we've enjoyed since uh, the Constitution was actually signed in 1787. It was implemented in 1789. So since then, we've been enjoying the fruits of that. But we've lost our sense of priority. John Adams said, this country is great so long as you can keep it. Because he understood in a society like ours, where we give a maximum amount of freedom to citizens, that when citizens use their freedom to go away from God, then the inevitable result is a loss of a sense of destiny and, and a right, side of, right, right a attitude toward priority. And so wrong priorities, and then confusion about our, about our prosperity. I look at people today, and they, they, you know, we, we've been so prosperous for so long. Um, so and since that's the case, why, why is it that people want to go back to a system which is proven false, which is proven evil? We want to go back to that. Why would we go back to a system that was devised by a socialist and have a government based on a dictatorship? Why would we go back to that? Well, we've lost our sense of priority, confusion about the source of our priority, and then failure to correctly interpret history right now. People say, well, th things aren't so bad. Uh, open our eyes, they're pretty bad. I've never, now some of you have lived longer than me. Uh, that means you're still young. Don't, don't fret about that. Uh, but the fact is that I have never seen anything like this. And uh, I think, I dare say, most of you haven't. We've seen tough times, but nothing like this. We've got all the woke issues, whatever that means. Uh, you ask somebody what woke is, I'm not sure they could tell you. I used to be a principal back in the day, and I had a girl come up to me one time, or two of them, and they engaged me in conversation. And so when the conversation was over, the last thing they said was, Mr. Milstead, you ain't very woke. And I thought as they went away, well, you ain't ever learned no English either. So, <laughs> uh, so I did, like Chuck said, I refrained from saying that. I, I did pretty good. So woke, whatever that is. The decline of values and moral strength in our country. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. What about freedom? I'd love just to hear that word one time when people are talking on camera. Wow, diversity, equity, inclusion. LGBTQIA2S+. XYZ, thank, thank you, Rich. Uh, and that's intimidation tactics. Invoking, trying to invoke fear and intimidation. Taking the military and making it a social experiment. How sad that is. Wow. College professors imposing on students their viewpoint. And so we've been inundated with that. Fear and intimidation in the population. Fear and intimidation. Have you ever seen, I've never in my life seen a nation so fearful. But the government likes that. Because instead of turning to God, we want to turn to the government. Government is designed not to do those things. It's designed to protect your freedom. 
That's all it's designed for. And so I think there's no clue, uh, there, there is no clue in among the general population that we're living in an evil day. I think that's obvious. I've actually written a definition for evil. And then I'm gonna read you a formal definition. Uh, there, there are people that I trust in uh, writing definitions, but here's mine. Evil is the proliferation and acceptance of Satan's plan as the norm. As the norm, that's kind of where we are. It is the attempt, attempt, excuse me, to diminish the importance of the Bible, diminish the importance of the person of Christ, and the plan of God in general. That's what he wants to do. It is reliance on the concept of humanism. Wow, confidence in humans. That's pretty scary. Reliance on the concept of humanism, which stresses the innate goodness of man and dependence on the virtues of man. Now, that's my definition of evil. Because when we get there, cursed is the man who places his confidence in man. And so that's where we are as a nation. Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer, of course, founder of Dallas Seminary, had a more formal uh, definition, so listen to this. Dr. Schaefer says in volume two of his Systematic Theology, he says the cosmos, and he, he counts that as the uh, Satan system. That's what he calls it, Satan system. He says the cosmos is a vast order or system that Satan has promoted which conforms to the ideals, the aims, and the methods of Satan. It is a civil, civilization now functioning apart from God. 1947, when he wrote that. This system embraces its godless government, conflicts, armaments, jealousies, cultures, education, morality, and pride. It is that sphere in which man lives. It is what he sees, what he employs, and to the uncounted multitude, it is all they've ever known. Can you think, isn't it difficult to imagine growing up like that and that's all you ever know? We're fortunate that at some point Christ came into our lives and hopefully gave us another viewpoint and we have a uh, optimistic viewpoint about the future. But there are so many millions of people every day whose attitude toward life is just make the next day. And so that's what Dr. Tavers trying to that's where we live. It is the uncounted multitude. It is all they've ever known so long as they live on the earth. It is properly styled, he said, in a phrase that he coined, Dr. Schaefer, he called it cosmos diabolicus. And that's where we're living. And we're seeing the fruits of that now. So the question becomes for us, can we, will we, is it even possible for us to get past that? And I think it is. That's the good news. I don't believe that we will. I think it can happen because it's happened before. In fact, let's look at a couple of instances where it did happen as our goal today, and then uh, we will go have dessert here in a few minutes. All right, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, if you would. Satan has a plan, and we know that. Uh, his plan is to get us to focus on anything but what's important, to just live for today, to have a system of morality that clues nothing about 
um, what God would have us do. In fact, to take God out of the picture. And because that has happened in our society, we are living in what I consider to be the saddest society that I've ever seen. People are sad. People are frustrated. People don't know how to handle the exigencies of life. Just think about some of the things that you have experienced in your life, difficult circumstances. How did you do it without Christ and the fallback on the person we love more than anything else? How do, you, how do, we, how do people do that? But every day, hundreds of millions of people go through that. And Satan has used that very, very dramatically. So let's look in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read three or four verses, beginning in verse 10. But we want to get down and look at his missiles and his targets. Satan has his own missiles. And then, of course, he has specific targets for those missiles. And I got some bad news for you. We're one of the targets. He wants to diminish what we can do in our own faithless life to make sure we're relying totally on the power and purpose of the Word of God. That's what he wants to do. I right, notice in chapter 6, I'm going to begin in verse 10, and I'm going to actually read down to uh, verse uh, 16. So uh, we won't cover all of those. Each verse itself has its own uh, wonderful message. He says in verse 10, the apostle, now the apostle could testify to this. One of our previous speakers talked about the apostle Paul chained to a Roman soldier for two solid years. So he's, what he's writing here about the armament of the Roman soldier, he saw, he experienced it, and he saw them put it on every day. And so he's going to take that and give us a beautiful metaphor about the Christian living in USA in 2023, hopefully. All right, verse 10 says, Finally, or from now on, start becoming strong in the Lord by means of his power. See, that's the key, his power in us. Verse 11, put on. And the word put on here is a very interesting concept. It means to pick up and put it on every day. And that's what we've got to do. We can't have a down day. You've got to pick up and put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the devices, the strategies of Satan. Now, in verses 12, you've got a couple of verses here. That's what we call the T-O-N-E in the Army, uh, the Table of Organization and Equipment. I don't know if they still call that or not. Anybody keep up with that? that sound right? Anyway, it used to be called the T-O-E, Table of Organization and Equipment. And Satan has his. And look at what the, he has available to him. For our struggle, beginning in verse 12, is not against flesh and blood. And, of course, that means human beings. You should never see the humans out there. When you see a person who is a member of the LGBT whatever, when you see that, they, that person is not the enemy. He may be motivated by the enemy, but he, he really is not the enemy. The enemy is Satan himself and his plan and what he wants you to do. And so uh, that's when people like that, when, when they accost you or they come up and want to begin a conversation, uh, the, the goal would be to be very cool, very loving, very kind, and very gracious. That's, that's what God requires us to do. And so uh, remember that when, if you ever have that opportunity. Uh, if you don't want that opportunity and you see one of those folks coming, and I've seen some of them coming, you can turn around and go the other way. It's probably not a bad idea because they can aggravate you. But notice how he continues here. 
he says in verse 12, continue, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, that's highest ranking demonic creatures, the Greek word is arche, against the powers, that's the army officers of the, of the uh, rule of Satan, against world forces. He has his ambassadors. In fact, one of our studies that's coming fall will be looking at ambassador, ambassador demons to foreign capitals. I mentioned the book of Daniel in particular. And then he continues, uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's the rank and file demons. So since all that is out there, and by the way, Satan is stronger than you are. He is more powerful than any of us. But the nice thing about him is he can only be one place at one time. People, say, well, people in China today may be saying, and I get it, Satan's after me. And then somebody in Frisco, Texas could say that. But he only can do one. But he has his whole army that keeps up with everything you do. And so since that is the case, and since it is more, they are more powerful than we are, we have to turn to the captain of our army. And that is Jesus Christ, of course. He says, therefore, because you have this force against you, kind of like Captain Solomon did in the Marianas there uh, as, as he fought against the enemy soldiers. And so he stood up and was strong. But notice here, therefore, since you have all of that, take up the full armor of God, the full armor, that you may be able to stand in the evil day. That's our day. We are living in that evil day. And then he continues in verse 14, and then having done everything to stand. Now verse 14, therefore, hold your ground. Stand firm means to hold your ground. Not ugly, not in such a way as to turn people off, but with kindness and generosity toward others as they need the gospel, as they need some divine influence in their lives. Hold your ground. Stand up for what is right. If we don't hold our ground, if this group doesn't hold its ground, we're, go we're going down as a nation as we know it. And, of course, uh, God doesn't want that, but he may have to go there to rear up somebody else that will stand. He says, uh, verse 14, hold your ground. Therefore, having girded your loins or, or your gear, putting on your gear, with truth. Now the word gear here means a, the idea of a belt. And it's called the belt of truth later on. But when you put that belt on, when the Roman soldier did, everything that he wore was attached to that belt. It held everything in place. And so that's why it's called the uh, guard up your loins with truth. See, that's what our society can't stand today. Just stand for the truth. And then that, that covers a lot of ground right there, a lot of territories we can see. Therefore, having your loins girded or buckled, your gear with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And that refers to the integrity of your soul as you understand and use and apply the doctrines and principles of the Word of God. That's that breastplate. It will protect you from harm. And it continues... Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, are we prepared as believers to tell others about Christ and to give them a, a, an avenue of hope? Christ is that hope. 
and we want to give forth his word, and that's why they call it the preparation of the gospel of Christ, of peace. And then in verse 16, in addition to all this, pick up and put on the shield of faith. Now the Roman soldier, his shield that Paul is testifying to here in his metaphor, that's, that the shield weighed anywhere from 35 to 40 pounds, and he had to maneuver it in battle or in drills, and the first time he got hold of that thing, I'm sure he thought he was going to have a heart attack. That thing was heavy. It was made out of wood and iron. And so it was vital to his protection. And so they had to learn to use it. And that's the same way with us. We have to grow to the point where we can effectively and positively use our shield of faith. It doesn't happen the day you accepted Christ as Savior. The day we believe in Christ as Savior, I was just glad to be saved. I didn't know anything. Unfortunately, I have wonderful parents who taught me a lot, uh, made me memorize scripture when I didn't want to, and I still thank them today for that. I think, think about them uh, quite often. And so taking up that shield to where you can actually use it, and notice what the purpose of the shield is, so that you may be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And of course, the Roman army would take, would go into battle, and it was not uncommon for them to receive artillery from the opposing army, and that artillery could be a log of a tree that big, catapulted for 500 to 700 yards in air, and they had lit it on fire. And so they had to have a shield to protect themselves against that. And they would all lock shields. When that thing came in, usually nothing of that missile ever touched one of them. They were well protected. And so uh, that's what God wants us to do. We've got to have a shield, but you've got to have an exercise in making that thing work. It doesn't just happen overnight. Well, let's look at that shield. Let's turn to Hebrews just a minute. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And look at that shield for just a second. In launching his missiles, Satan, of course, wants to penetrate any defense that we have. Now, if you don't have a defense, I've got news for you. It's going to penetrate, and it's going to be deadly, and it's going to distract for us, the believer, why we're here. And so when that adversity comes, which is inevitable, Satan's going to make sure you have plenty of that. Uh, God has not promised you wonderful skies your whole life through. He just didn't promise that. And so we have this shield, but that shield has to be exercised to be used. And so let's look in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 at six or seven characteristics of the shield of faith, what we would call the faith rest life. And when God uses the word rest here, he means turn it over to him. Use his power. Humanly speaking, we are not strong enough to handle the missiles of Satan. And so let's note in verse 9, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now it's there. The question becomes, are we willing and able to take advantage of it so that we're relaxed 
when the time comes for us to bear the target, become the target of Satan and all of his minions. And notice first characteristic in verse 10. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. This first individual or this first part of developing the shield is confidence in God, resting in him, taking him at his word, taking him at what he says. When he says something, it's true. When Jesus was talking to the disciples in the upper room discourse uh, the night that he was betrayed, he told them, he said, my words must be in you. In fact, let's turn to John 14. Hold your finger here if you would. Let's turn to John 14 and notice exactly what he said. And this is his last admonition to them. I mean, shortly after this, he is betrayed. Shortly after this, uh, it's not long until he's on the cross. Now, he goes through several trials. But notice in chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 21. Jesus was telling the disciples now, last message he would have with them essentially. He who has my commandments and keeps, guards, or obeys them, if he will. And of course in the Greek, that's a third class condition. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Do our eyes go to the problem first or do they go to the solution of the problem first? And so he said, keep your eyes on me. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself. He will continue to reveal himself to us. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and make our abode with him. Now you're getting a shield up now. When we listen to what God says through his word, because the word is the thinking of Christ. The word, the Bible tells us, the word is the mind of Christ. And so as that word becomes more and more important to us, as that word becomes the source of joy, happiness, contentment, and resting in God, then we're becoming powerful. We're starting to use that shield in a powerful way. So one characteristic of using the shield of the faith rest life is using it. Learning the principles of the word of God and actually using them. All right, well, let's go down back to Hebrews now and notice another characteristic of the faith rest shield, as we'll call it. Satan has all these missiles. Now, of course, one of his missiles is to target your area of weakness. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, in fact, in Hebrews also in chapter 12, I believe it is, the Bible is very clear. Lay aside the besetting sin. You say, well, I don't know what that is. Now, now come on. We're all up in age. I know what they are for me. And so Satan would love to have you fail in your besetting sin, whatever is easiest for you to succumb to. He knows exactly what that is. And so, uh, as a believer in Christ, we want to overcome that. And so, in verse 11 says, Therefore, be diligent. You can't have an every now and then desire to study and understand Scripture. The Roman soldier did not walk out there uh, and drill and drill for 10 minutes and that was it. 
he drilled till he couldn't stand up anymore. He took on the shield and he finally got to be where he could use it very effectively. But he was diligent. He did it day after day after day. So one of the great characteristics for developing that shield is diligence. We can't be slackers. Uh, Jesus called the disciples sometimes slackers. Did y'all know that? Let's turn to Matthew. Notice uh, Jesus, of course, he, he was always truthful. Look at Matthew. I, this is one of those things off the top of my head, and that is probably very dangerous. So let's see if Matthew chapter 8. No, I'm actually right. That's very good. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus, of course, had been administering uh, to a large crowd. He gave an order, and his order was, let's get in the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, and then we're going to go to the other side and we're going to get quiet. We're going to study among ourselves, in effect. And so they followed his order, of course. But notice what happened, and notice how Jesus had to address them. So in verse 23, when they had gotten into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. Uh, and then it says, but he, talking about Jesus, was asleep. That's wonderful. Big storm, Jesus sound asleep. Now he gets it, obviously. And he knows who's in control of this whole situation. So in that process, we ask ourselves the question, do we know, do we apply the concept of knowing who is always in control? He's got it. He's got it for you. He had it for those 12 men there. He's got it for all of us uh, living in this dispensation of the church. And so, of course, the disciples panicked. It says, And behold, there arose a great storm, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was sleeping. Verse 25. They knew what to do, though, didn't they? They came to him. And they basically said, Help! That, now, it was a sound of panic, of course. They came to him and awoke him, saying, Deliver us, Lord, we are perishing. And literally it says, we're going down. And he said to them, and notice he said this, the storm's still raging out there. And then notice exactly what he said. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He said, why are you so cowardly, you short-time trusters? That's what he said. Short-time trusters. Isn't that the way we are? I mean, one day, we got the greatest faith there ever was. And you let something a little odd, a little quirky, a little weird happen, and then we begin to question. We're short-time trusters. And so that's not what he wants from us. He wants us to get that shield going and to be diligent and make sure that our number one priority is the Word of God. All right, let's turn quickly back to uh, chapter 4 of uh, Hebrews and notice in closing these last characteristics of this shield. Verse 12, the word of God is alive and powerful. Third part of that shield, you've got to know and to be able to apply and use scripture. I can memorize many, many scriptures, but until God the Holy Spirit makes that real to me in application, I am powerless. So the word of God has to become most important to us, our number one priority. The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And of course, the sword mentioned here is the Roman sword called the Makara. 
and the makaira was a sword. It was very short. It was about 18 inches long, but it was sharp on both sides. And so whenever somebody came after him, with, with the Roman soldier with another sword of a different type, they would swish down, and the Roman soldier could cut down and cut up, and he killed them in one or two, the enemy in one or two strokes. Very superior sword for a close-knit battle. And so the, the Word of God will protect us, encourage us, and challenge us in the close-quarter battles that we have, and you have them. Because there are things you have to endure by yourself. We can call on other people. You can call a friend. That's well and good. But what's going to happen when we have our own lion's den? Daniel had his lion's den. He couldn't phone a friend. He couldn't go, let me find a, a copy of the Bible right quick. There wasn't much Bible then. And he couldn't open it up and read his favorite promise. He had to go on what was in the, the contents of his soul. That's what he went on. And so the Bible tells us he was not afraid. All these hungry lions, they didn't mess with him. All these, he was a target for them, and they just stepped aside. Daniel did not fear, and he did it by himself. Each one of us must have our own inventory of biblical ideas. You've got to have yours. I've got to have mine. Time's coming. You have to apply by yourself. That is the word of God. And then in verse 13, your faith is open to divine inspection. You've got to know the word and be able to apply the word. But as you grow in your Christian way of life, then you've got to have the ability to uh, understand God's taking inventory on us every day. And so that's what it says. There is nothing hidden from him. Are we growing in our Christian lives? Are we making progress by which we can effectively live in the Christian life, even in these weird times in which we live. And then in verse 14, he says, hold fast our confession. Can you and are we willing to testify about the power of God in our lives? The shield of faith will give us the evidence that we need that we are powerful simply because of the will, purpose, plan, and power of God. And that needs to be our go-to every day. And then in verse 15, the Bible tells us, just as Christ was tempted, you will be tempted. Faith, and the word tempted here really, is the concept of being tested. Christ was tested every day. You're going to be tested. You know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But then when the test comes, on what do we focus we are tested every day. And so do we as believers understand that Christ has already been there? We'll never go through anything that he has not already experienced, and he can give you the confidence that I, he said, I've got this. He's always got it. He knew your problems. He knew your circumstances before you ever knew you had a problem. That's how great our God is. And then lastly, the shield of faith demands that we pray. We have to become prayer warriors. In fact, we are commanded in verse 16, let us go, it says in verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence. Remember who you're talking to. Just like Chuck said today, it's one on, when you go to the Lord in prayer, it's you and God. And you can tell him anything. You say, well, I've got done some pretty bad things. Well, yeah, join the club. 
You can tell him anything. And then once you tell him whatever your worry is, whatever your concern is, are we short-time trusters or are we going to leave it there? Leave it with him as to go. And then notice it continues in the verse, let us therefore confidently approach literally the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy. And mercy, simply stated, is God's grace in action on your behalf. So he will demonstrate that mercy. He's willing to do that. He has done it. You could all, I'm just standing up here, I'm the one talking today. But any one of you could come up today and say, I'm going to give you a story about what God has done for me. Every one of you could do that. Well, that's, to, that's one day. We got the next day. And the next day, of course, to continue to, to do that. That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I want to close out with two verses. Notice Psalms 106 in the Old Testament. This psalm, unlike many, is about Moses and not about David. Psalm 106. Of course, Moses, I think he had one of the more difficult jobs that anybody could ever have. He had all these uh, rebellious Jews who blamed him for everything, said he forced them to come out of the land of Egypt. No, he didn't. They walked out of their own free will. And so that's all he listened to for 40 years, day after day after day. And God finally stepped in and said, I'm going to kill every one of these guys. And Moses, I'm going to save you. And what did Moses say? Don't do it. That's exactly right. Notice in verse 23, one person stood up. One person stood in the gap, and it made all the difference. Verse 23, therefore he said that he would destroy them, the children of Israel. Had not Moses... His chosen one stood in the breach before him uh, to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses prayed. God answered. One person stood up. David before Goliath. Everybody complained how big and terrible he was. David was so confident about Goliath, he picked up five smooth stones. Goliath had four brothers. He was going to kill them all with great confidence. He was the one person who stood up. Elijah, God called him. And Elijah, of course, what we would say is he's not a perfect Christian, but he was a great believer in a lot of ways. And God used him. One man stood up, and the whole country of Israel was preserved for 150 more years. One stood up in a small country. But there's a time in history where no one was there to stand. Let's turn to Ezekiel just a moment. Ezekiel chapter 22. It's not a book you get into very much. It's almost intimidating for me to read parts of Ezekiel. It is a great, great story. In the day of Ezekiel, his contemporary in the Bible was Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah, of course, was in Judah. He was proclaiming the message. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar had come by, and they had taken many captives, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're all contemporaries. But Jeremiah was left, and then the message was given to Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel chapter 22, 
Notice what the difference is when there is nobody to stand. You remember what they did to Jeremiah? He preached and preached and warned and warned, and they just finally put him in a well to shut him up. They didn't want to hear the truth. And somebody finally got him out. But in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, God is telling Ezekiel this. I searched for a man. God wanted one person to stand. I searched for a man among them who should build the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should destroy it, but I found no one. And the result is, verse 31, Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought onto their heads, declares the Lord. Call that Operation Boomerang. You, th- you do the bad thing, you throw it out there, and it comes back, and you're struck down with your own evil devices. That's where we're headed. But God is kind, God is patient, and if some will stand, he will preserve us. The day of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham finally got down. He was praying about it. He said, Lord, if there's 10 left, will you preserve that area? He said, I will. So when you take that population of a million or so in Sodom and Gomorrah and transfer that to the United States, my hope is, my desire is, that proportionately there are enough believers in this country who know and apply, understand the word of truth, who are great believers, and God will preserve us. So that's on us. Are we willing to stand in the gap? Are we willing as Christians to be diligent students of the word of God? Are we willing to grow by means of grace and a knowledge of Christ our Savior? I feel like it's on me. I want to do my part to make sure that this can't be said about Mike Milstead here in verse 30. There was nobody standing. Let's stand. Let's do exactly what God wants to do. Let's become powerful believers and use our shield of faith. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the word of God that lives and abides forever. We're thankful for this opportunity today. We pray that you bless our time of fellowship together. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thanks, Mike. That was a blessing. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.